Please do turn with me to Colossians, the letter of Paul to Colossians, chapter 1, and I read again our text this morning, verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. This is a profound verse. There are depths of theology, depths of understanding that we will never understand. In this verse, we must come to it carefully and very thoughtfully. Our subject this morning is the fullness of Christ, the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it pleased the Father, you'll notice this is in italics, in our King James Version, the word for the Father does not appear there, but it so obviously is implied. In verse 12 it says, giving thanks unto the Father. This is a prayer, it hasn't finished, it carries on in verse 19. So it's helpful to have the words, the Father, because it's so very clearly implied and it adds to our understanding. It pleased the Father. The subject of these verses, as we've thought already, is the preeminence. The fact that Christ is over all, he is before all, he's under all, he's around all, he is preeminent. There is nobody else. He is all-sufficient. That's what we shall think of this morning in addition. The verses that we've thought of from verse 15 described the preeminence of Christ in three ways. In relationship between Christ, the eternal Son, and his Father, who is the image of of the invisible God. Secondly, it describes his preeminence in relation to the fact that he is the creator. There is no other creator. I sometimes wonder, how can anybody believe in evolution? When you have a verse like verse 16, could this be any clearer? For by him were all things created. We didn't even need Genesis. For by him were all things created. He didn't do it through millions of years. He didn't do it through the help of evolution. For by him were all things created. If you believe the Bible, you must believe in creation. Thirdly, his relationship to the Father, the fact that he is the creator, over all, above all, before all, after all. All things were created by him and for him. The third thing is mentioned in verse 18. It's his recreation. What is the church? The church is not just a building. It's not a people that have decided to get together 
in a holy huddle, shut the doors, close the gates. No, the church is his body. We are attached to the head, which is Christ. And Christ is the beginning of the church. He's the end of the church. When he gathers all his people together, he is the firstborn from the dead. But in all things, these three things, his relationship to the Father, the fact that he is the creator, and that he is the head of the church, he will and must have the preeminence. Well, we think this morning of three more things. How does Christ have the preeminence? How is he all sufficient? This is the great problem throughout all of time. We want to add to the word of God and we want to take away from it. We want to add to Christ and we want to say he's not sufficient. And these verses, particularly verse 19, will teach us that Christ is all we need. There is no one else. We don't need to add to Christ for salvation, number one. We don't need to add to Christ for the Christian's sanctification. The process that takes us from being saved in Christ, but still a sinner, to being made more and more like Christ, reflecting in the mirror more of the qualities of Christ, that sanctification. And thirdly, we don't need anyone else for what we call sustaining grace. Christ is all we need. Well, that will be our subject this morning. So three questions as we look at this very profound verse. Why? Why? Where and how is Christ preeminent and all-sufficient. Why? Why did it please the Father that in him should all fullness dwell? Well, there's many answers we can give to the question of why he is and why he was enabled to be. The answer, very simply, that we can first give is it pleased the Father. This was the plan of God, the Trinity. It pleased the Father, it pleased the Son, it pleased the Holy Spirit that Christ should be Christ. That Christ should have within him all the qualities of the Godhead. This is very deep. Our feeble human minds struggle to comprehend how this is possible, how we can take it in. It pleased the Father. It was a divine appointment that Christ 
should become human, incarnate, take on human flesh. If you understand these truths this morning, your life will be transformed like never before. Maybe you've lived on a very ordinary plane. But if you understand this verse, you will understand depths and truths as never before. It pleased the Father. Well, secondly, if it pleases the Father, it should please you and me. Let me give you another definition of a Christian. We always need to be defining what is a Christian. A Christian is somebody who wants what the Father wants. If the Father says it's good, then it's good. The Son desired to do the work of the Father, for it pleased the Father. We should want what the Father wants. And it says here, it pleased the Father. And so it should please us that God should become man. Does that please you this morning? Is it just a fact of history? Or does it warm your heart to hear that God should become man? It pleased the Father. Therefore it pleases me that in him should all the fullness dwell. It pleased the Father and God the Father was resolved that nothing but nothing should stop this from happening. Just think of the Old Testament. How many times was the seed, the promised seed, the seed royal, the seed that was promised from Genesis 3, 15, how many times was that seed nearly destroyed? A family that didn't have a child. A child then came. And then the child was nearly killed. How many times? Again and again. It's an astonishing thing how that seed was preserved and protected. Because, why? Because it pleased the Father that nothing should prevent your salvation and mine if we're in Christ. God was resolved. He determined that it would be so. And nothing but nothing but nothing would get in the way. Just think of Christ's life. When he was alive, how often the enemies of the gospel wanted to kill him, wanted to take him. And Christ said the words, My time is not yet come. He wasn't done. His work wasn't finished. He couldn't go to Calvary. He had more to teach. He had an example to show. He had to teach his disciples, my time 
is not yet come. He was resolved. But you know, there's a purpose here which is so deep. We call it, the theologians call it, the hypostatic union. You don't need to worry about that. God and man in one. Uncompromised, unchanged, no division, no separation, God and man at the same time. That is a mystery. The hypostatic union. Not two, one. This means when we worship, we worship Christ. Because Christ is God. We don't principally worship the Spirit. We don't principally worship the Father we can but principally we worship Christ. He's the one that we come to, and through him we come to the Father. Well, there's another why. Why? Because it was necessary. It was necessary that in him should all the fullness dwell. Think of God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, one, three persons, before time began as we think of it, thinking of the problem of sin. They knew there would be a fall. They knew that our hearts would be unclean. How would God solve the great problem of sin? There was no other way. Man cannot solve the problem of sin. Human fallen man. Governments can't solve it. Education doesn't solve it. Only God can solve the problem that is actually God's problem because of his holiness and because he's made us and he's given us free will and we've chosen the wrong path. So God has to solve it. That's what this verse says. It was necessary for God to solve the problem. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Well, that's the first question. Why? I just scratched the surface. Secondly, where? Where should all this fullness, the truth, the character, the goodness, the greatness, all of his infinite attributes, where should they reside? Well, the answer is in the verse, very simply. In him. Paul uses repetition. Just look at verse 14. In whom? Verse 15, who? Verse 16, by him. Says it again at the end of verse 16, by him, for him. Paul, you're repeating yourself. Well, repetition is important. They say it's the mother of all understanding. Verse 17, by him. 
Verse 18. He is the head, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him. Verse 19. In him. Paul, we've got the point. What's the point? The point is the Colossian church, they wanted to add angels. They wanted to add ceremonies. Today, people have rosary beads, stained glass windows. They add to Christ. Do you do that? Is your form of worship involving an icon, a statue, sentimentality, a form of idolatry, a band, a stage, a worship leader, somebody that we clap and perform and clap the performance instead of God, that's adding to Christ. That's worshipping and proclaiming and clapping a performance instead of Christ. That's why Paul repeats himself. For by him, and in him, and for him, is all that we need for salvation, for worship, for sanctification, and for sustaining grace. Where? Well, let's look at it. In him. In him. That could be our text this morning. In Christ, the second person of the Trinity, resides all the glory of the Godhead bodily. We can look at some other verses. If you look at John 1.16, you don't need to turn to it. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. Turn over to Colossians 2. Verse 3, while you have it open, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ is all wisdom. In Christ is all knowledge. It doesn't live anywhere else. It doesn't reside anywhere else, not in any other person, not in Mother Church. These things are sublime. Look at Colossians 2, verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. My friends, this morning, you put those three verses together. You have a Christ who is divine and a Christ who is human. At the same time, uncompromised, not in one respect, is his divinity diminished and his, and his humanity incomplete in him and in him only. We don't worship the stars. We don't need the philosophy of man. No priest can make you holy. 
No church can invest within you something that only resides in Christ. Well, that's the first answer to where. Secondly, was it in Christ and no longer? No, look at the tense of verse 19. In him should all fullness dwell. Not dwelt, not will dwell. It's the continuous present tense. It was, it is, it always will be. In Christ, and that word is so comforting. We'll come back to it. If you have a need this morning, is Christ the answer? Yes. Because in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. In him should all fullness dwell. It did and it does and it will. Permanence. In perpetuity, we often say. And because of that, he is accessible all times and in all places. And that reminds us as well, where does it dwell? It dwells in a living way. The resurrection is so important. If Christ died and didn't rise again, we would have a dead religion. But it doesn't. In Christ, the Godhead dwells because Christ has conquered death and because he's alive. He lives again. Where does this dwell? In Christ. Let me give an example. Perhaps this will help the children this morning. King Charles. He lives in a palace, doesn't he? He lives in lots of palaces. He lives in Buckingham Palace and then Windsor Palace. But let's just suppose he has one grand palace. But he decides to go camping for a week. He goes on one of those holidays and perhaps it's a campsite by the seaside and for a few weeks he just lives in a tent. Would you believe? A tent. He has a sleeping bag, maybe a pillow. Is he still the king? Oh yes. But he's living in a tent, sleeping in a sleeping bag. Does he still have the keys to Buckingham Palace? Yes. He can go in. He doesn't need to give his security pass. They recognize him. He goes to the gates and they open. He's the king. Does he have all the privileges and rights and the riches of the king? Yes. But he's living in a tent. Isn't that Christ? When he came to earth, he did not empty himself of his divinity. He put it to one side. He made himself of no reputation. He slept in a tent. He took upon him a form that made him seem 
to be one of us. And he was, but he was also still the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The prophet Ezekiel speaks of beholding the glory of the Lord in the temple. He imagined in his mind's eye that just as it happened in the Old Testament, the temple was filled with the glory of God, that it would happen again. But that's not what the prophecy means. Ezekiel 44 verse 4. That fullness would reside in a body, in Christ. Behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord, which is his body. And that's how it was filled. God with us, identifying in every way in a human body, living in a house, even though he didn't own a home. Well, what glories these are. We've thought of the why, we've thought of the where. In him, dwelling in a living way. Now, how about the how? How does this work? How is Christ preeminent, all-sufficient? This world is vain and empty. Our lives are empty. We've been made in such a way that we are empty without God. Do you know that? If you don't know Christ in your life this morning, you are empty. You are deficient. The Apostle Paul said, I know that in me there dwells no good thing. In his flesh, in his body, there's no good thing. We're empty and what there is, is not good. But in Christ, it says, all fullness should dwell. If you take a glass this morning, you fill it with milk. You fill it right to the brim. And you try and put a pint of water in that glass. You know what would happen. It would overflow. But what this verse is telling us in some extraordinary way is every single attribute of God, we can count many of them, 28 maybe, some overlap perhaps, 14 that can be communicated to us and we can be like him, 14 that make God absolutely different and other, they're incommunicable, he's a spirit, he's immortal, he's unchangeable. But somehow, in this human body that Christ took on, every one of those attributes dwelt at the same time. We think of a man or woman and we say, oh, they're, they're a person of faithfulness. They've got that characteristic or they're patient. That probably means they're a bit slow or they're lacking in some other way, but not God, not Christ. 
every one of his attributes at the same time, unconflicted, in him all fullness should dwell. It means something like that. The word is pleroma. We get the word plethora, a multitude. In Christ, the pleroma of God's attributes, his qualities, his characteristics should dwell bodily. In quantity and in infinite quality. Can you get your head round that? In him should all the quantity and quality of all these attributes dwell. There was no deficiency. Nothing needed to be supplemented, added to, all fullness. That's staggering. That's why the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is beyond the comprehension of men and women. We can only touch on the surface. Well, let's think in three ways as we close of what this means to us. Let's think of it in terms of salvation. And if you want me to prove why the three things, they're all in the verses that follow. Salvation. Christ is preeminent, all-sufficient in salvation. It tells us that in verse 21 and following. Let me just stand aside and look at salvation. How is Christ all-sufficient? Do we need anything else? Do we need the rosary beads? Do we need the lucky charm? Do we need the confessional box? Do we need the special place where I feel God's presence and his touch? That's mystic. That's not what's being taught here. In Christ, for salvation, resides all that we need. You who were sometimes enemies, alienated. Verse 21, in your wicked works, that's me, a sinner, an enemy of God, cut off, apart, at a distance like the prodigal son. And Christ has reconciled me through what he's done, through what he is, through what he lived, through his death, through his resurrection, through his shed blood. Everything I need for salvation resides in him. If you worship something else, that's an insult to God. That's to take from Christ something of his fullness. That's idolatry. That's irreverence. Salvation. Secondly, verse 22, in the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy. That's sanctification. 
He takes my unholy life, my unholy body, everything that I've ever done, which is worthy of guilt and blame and punishment and justice and judgment. And he makes me holy. He sanctifies my life. He takes something unholy and makes it holy. That's sanctification. He does it when he dies. He does it by his spirit. Every day I live through sin being taken off and through that work and quality of God's character being shown in my life. And then there's a third thing, salvation, sanctification, What about my life and my trials and my afflictions and all the difficulties of life, dealing with death, dealing with sickness, dealing with all the difficulties of parenting and looking after aging parents? Is God sufficient for that? Is Christ all I need or do I need to turn to something else? Verse 23, if You continue in the faith. Faith in what? Faith in Christ and in his word and in his sufficiency, grounded, settled, and be not moved away. What from? The hope of the gospel. Who's that? Christ, which ye have heard. I was listening to a dear friend who's now with the Lord in a message that he gave 16 years ago, and somebody asked a question afterwards and said, we've heard about this thing called tech evangelism. It goes like this. Today the world is so modern. We live in a postmodern society. People have got the internet. This was 16 years ago. We've got this and we've got that. Surely the word of God in an old-fashioned language, is no longer sufficient. Surely the message of the gospel is no longer adequate to meet the needs of complex society. Surely we need to go about it in a different way. Oh no, said this dear man. Why did Christ wait for 2,000 years for the internet? He didn't. Yes, we can use technology, but only to distribute the word of God, only to proclaim it, only to preach it, only so that more people will hear it. The gospel doesn't change because the need doesn't change. And the method doesn't change. Preaching, hearing, proclaiming, publishing. What? Jesus Christ and his gospel. Salvation, sanctification, and sustaining grace. Somebody here, somebody at home this morning, I know there's some of you that can't go out. Afflictions of life have taken hold of you and you wish it was some other way. There is that thorn in the flesh. Be assured this morning, verse 24, 
who now rejoice, says the Apostle Paul, in my sufferings for you and fill up. It's the same term. Christ has been filled with all fillness and now he fills us up one by one that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ. Christ suffered. We must suffer. Christ was filled. We will be filled. And we will be filled, what with? Christ. His suffering. And the fact that he had life. And he had new life. And the Lord sustained and rose him from the dead. Oh, these are glorious, glorious things. I fear I've not done justice to the text. Let's read verse 19 as we closed. For it pleased the Father that in him should all the multitude, the quantity, the quality, the fullness of the Godhead reside continually in him. He is sufficient. He is preeminent for your salvation and for mine, for your sanctification and for mine, and for all sustaining grace in every trial, in every affliction, in life and on the deathbed. He will sustain and he will provide. Let's sing our closing hymn.